Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am here every week at this time, and I'm glad you decided to tune in today. Joining me in the second segment of today's program is Forbes contributor John Tamney. Uh, John is a past guest here on the program. I know you're going to enjoy uh, my conversation with John. He's uh, optimistic as far as uh, the U.S. economy is concerned. You'll hear why. And I'll chat with him a bit about his most recent book titled The End of Work, and uh, it's not what you might think it is. Uh, John is also the editor uh, of Real Clear Markets. So uh, John's a terrific guy to uh, have on the program and get his perspective. You know, as far as perspective is concerned, there is something relating to money and debt that's not often discussed. In fact, it's my experience that this relationship between money and debt and economic growth is not understood by many folks, if not most folks, as well as many financial professionals. And I was reading an article this past week authored by Jesse Colombo that dealt with this uh, very topic. And I want to give you just a bit from the article, and I'm going to share with you a little bit as to what this means for you and your money. And I think it's important that given today's economic circumstances that you're aware of this. First, a bit from the article. The point I want to add to this debate, and he is referring to this debt debate, is that there is a very real risk that soaring global debt will cause another severe economic crisis, which will reverse a portion of the gains made in poverty reduction, cause geopolitical instability, unrest, wars, and other unpleasant side effects. Get this, global debt has surged nearly $150 trillion since 2003. So in the last decade and a half, global debt has surged by $150 trillion. And since the financial crisis of 2008, global debt has risen $70 trillion. Now, why is this important? Well, because when there is too much debt to be paid and there is a default on debts, money disappears from the financial system, which is, in essence, deflation. Now, that may sound like a lot of economic gobbledygook, but here's really what that means. If the money supply is contracting or getting smaller and we have deflation, history tells us that stocks and real estate and a lot of other assets don't like deflation and they tend to decrease in value. And I'll give you an example that probably sounds familiar. You know, during the financial crisis, or I should say prior to the financial crisis, there were a lot of banks out there that were making loans to people that wanted to buy homes. So these were mortgage loans. And the banker was loaning the borrower 100% of the money they needed to finance their home purchase. Now, incidentally, that practice is continuing again today. Well, let's say that this hypothetical character, we'll call him Mr. Jones, wants to go buy a $200,000 house, and the banker loans Mr. Jones $200,000 to buy the house. Everything might be clicking along just fine because real estate prices are rising. Mr. Jones has equity in his home, even though he doesn't have any skin in the game. 
And now, all of a sudden, because credit is drying up and deflation hits, real estate prices now decline. Well, maybe the $200,000 home that Mr. Jones purchased is now only worth $150,000. Mr. Jones, because he didn't have any skin in the game to start with, decides that he is going to quit making payments on the home because he owes a lot more on the home than the home is worth. Now the bank owns the home since that home, that piece of real estate, collateralized the mortgage loan that the bank made to Mr. Jones. Now the house is worth $150,000, but the bank is owed about $200,000. So what happens to the other $50,000? Presumably the bank sells the home for $150,000, and $50,000 of money disappears. That's how the money supply contracts. We call that money going to money heaven. It disappears. It goes away. It doesn't come back. And when money disappears from the financial system, that is deflationary. Now, here is why that's important in light of Mr. Colombo's article. Since the financial crisis, global debt has increased by $70 trillion. And we all know what happened during the financial crisis. Banks went insolvent, real estate prices declined, stock prices fell. And Mr. Colombo says, as bad as the 2008 global financial crisis was, the next crisis will hit the global economy even harder due to the fact that an additional $70-plus trillion in debt has been added to the system. That means governments and central banks have far less firepower with which to stabilize their economies in the next crisis. Now, when we take a look at measuring debt, we can look at $70 trillion more in worldwide debt than existed back in 2008, but the most common way to look at debt, right or wrong, is debt measured as a percentage of gross domestic product. Essentially, it's what's debt compared to income. This is not unlike you going to apply for a loan at the bank and your banker asking you what other debt you have and what's your income. The banker wants to know your debt-to-income ratio because maybe more debt would be okay if you have enough income to make the debt payments. Well, that's essentially what debt-to-GDP measurement looks at. What's the debt compared to what's the income? Well, global debt as a percentage of global gross domestic product, or to put that another way, global debt as a percentage of global income is now at an all-time high of 225%. That means there's $2.25 in debt for every dollar in economic production all around the world. So Mr. Colombo, I believe, correctly concludes that the global economy is heading toward a point of total debt saturation. See, at a certain point, the system cannot handle any more debt. And there's a very simple, straightforward reason for that. Debt requires that today's production be spent to pay for yesterday's consumption. Let me repeat that. Debt requires that today's production be spent to pay for yesterday's consumption. And that leaves less of today's production to be spent today. And I'll give you just a very quick example to make the point, hopefully, clear. Let's say you go buy a new car 
and you pay $35,000 cash for the new car. Now let's say a friend of yours shows up and says, wow, did you get a new car? Wow, I really like that car. I think I might go get the same car. So your friend goes and visits the same car dealership and buys the same car that you did, but instead of paying cash for the car, she gets a 60-month loan and elects to make payments on the car. You had $35,000 cash in the bank to buy the car. You're spending prior production. In order to have $35,000 in the bank, you had to go to work, you had to pay your taxes, you had to pay your bills, and you had to reserve some of that and save some money. You went to work in the past, and you spent the outcome of that work, the results of that work today. Now, your, your friend went down to the bank to borrow $35,000. She's going to make payments on the car, so she's got to get up and go to work and produce something tomorrow in order to have the money to make her car payments. She is spending future production or tomorrow's work efforts to pay for the car. You're spending yesterday's production. The bottom line is this. When you have to make payments on debt, it consumes future production. Future production is not infinite. It's not unlimited. Future production is finite or limited. And because it is, that means the debt that you accumulate today also has to have a limit. Once enough of tomorrow's production has been consumed by today's debt, the debt accumulation trend reverses, and then we get deflation in earnest. And that's what Mr. Colombo is talking about in his article. He says growing debt burdens will stifle economic growth, which will make it even harder to grow out from under the debt. Eventually, global debt saturation will lead to a downward spiral situation in which nearly all central banks will be forced to debase or print their fiat or paper currencies at an extremely high rate in order to pay the interest on the debt and keep their economies afloat for a little while longer. So will we have inflation or deflation? The answer is yes. That's why we believe you need to have a hedge for each in your portfolio. And if you're not sure if you have a hedge for each, I would encourage you to take advantage of some of the resources we have available on our website, which is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Nobody cares as much about your money as you do. Educate yourself. Go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and check out the resources. I'll be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and my special guest expert today is Mr. John Tamney. John is a Forbes contributor. He is a prolific author. His most recent book is titled The End of Work. He has also authored Who Needs the Fed and Popular Economics. He's the editor of Real Clear Markets. In fact, if you'd like to learn more about John and his work, you can go to realclearmarkets.com. He's also a senior economic advisor to Toreador Research and Trading. And John, it's a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Dennis. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. You know, John, let me just jump in because you uh, recently published uh, an article posted on Forbes and the title of the article was Sorry Mystics, Trump Didn't Talk Up the Markets by Smacking Down the Fed. And uh, as our listeners who are regular listeners know, we talked about uh, Chairman Powell's comments uh, recently that, uh, to paraphrase, uh, you know, we might be a little more dovish. We might not raise interest rates. And he mentioned the, uh, the equity market. So fill the listeners in a bit about your take on this and maybe a bit about what's in the article. Well, I just think what's got to be stressed, and, and my sense is that in time this is going to be accepted wisdom, the Fed's just not that important. It projects its influence through banks that are represent, what, 15%, and that number is falling of total lending in the U.S. economy. And it's also not very dynamic lending, nothing against banks, but they can't take big risks. They can't precisely because uh, they're not paying very much. Uh, for the money they have on deposit. Um, if, if they could take big risks, they'd pay a lot more money for the money they have on deposit. And so uh, this notion that the Fed playing around with an overnight lending rate among antiquated banks has some sort of big economic impact that affects the stock markets is not a serious one. And the good news is history kind of supports this. The Fed was aggressively cutting rates, rates in 2001, stocks cratered. Fed aggressively cut rates in 2008, stocks cratered. Um, in Japan, the BOJ cut rates, has kept rates, quote, low for decades, where it was the rally there. Um, and when you look at the U.S., uh, the Fed's overseen uh, nine uh, rate hikes since 2015. Most of that time, during that time, that the st- stocks were rallying. So we're supposed to suddenly believe that uh, markets are sensitive to what the Fed does. I don't think it's a very serious view. So, John, what would you say to those who say, and I've had past guests on the program, and uh, we'll keep it generic, uh, who have said that uh, this recent stock market rally from 2009 to at least into 2018 um, was due largely to the Fed's program of quantitative easing. What what would you say uh, in response to that comment? I would say complete nonsense. Um, I would say what happened in Japan then, because Japan's central bank has overseen at least 11 doses of quantitative easing since uh, the early 90s. Why didn't stocks rally then? Um, People would say, okay, well, but what the Fed did here was engineer uh, – a rush to uh, higher yields and equities since interest rates were so low. And I would say once again, well, what happened in Japan? Uh, their interest rates across the yield curve have been much lower um, for the last several decades with no subsequent rally. Uh, people say, well, there's a great rotation out of low yielding bonds. But if that were true, we would have seen bonds correct. But during the time frame you described, bonds never corrected. Um, people will say, well, yeah, but there was $4 trillion looking for a home. 
and I'll just say, okay, but for $4 trillion to enter the stock market based on um, artificial machinations from the Fed, $4 trillion by definition would have to exit. For, for a bull to express optimism, a bear must be able to express equal amounts of pessimism. But the main thing I would say is that the very supposition dies of basic common sense. If the Fed could stimulate markets upwards, by definition, that would scare investors. And here's why. Uh, consider what were the most the, the biggest of the blue chip companies when the 21st century began. Uh, GE is the most valuable company in the world. AOL, Lucent Technologies, Tyco, WorldCom, Enron. Enron was the blue was a very blue chip. Where are they today? And so, if the Fed could stimulate the status quo, as a rule. It would be stimulating the past because think about what wasn't prominent when the 21st century began. Okay, Apple is just emerging from near bankruptcy. Microsoft had just been wrecked by the federal government with an antitrust case. Um, Amazon was peddling DVDs, CDs, and books. Um, Facebook didn't exist. Google was a largely unknown search engine. They are the five most valuable companies in the world today. But see, if the Fed had been propping up stocks, as a rule, it would have kept those down. And so what, what a scary thing if the Fed can engineer rallies. It quite simply can't. Markets are much wiser than that. So, John, if you don't mind, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. Um, if you go back and look at what uh, – and I'm going from memory here, so you can correct me if uh, you believe my time frames aren't correct – but I believe it was former Federal Reserve, uh, Dallas Federal Reserve Bank President Richard Fisher, who went on television on CNBC, as I recall, back in 2016, and pretty much said that the Fed front-end loaded a market rally in an attempt to create a wealth effect. And then he went on to say that, you know, they, they failed to do so. Um, how does that comment by a former Federal Reserve Bank president square with your view? Um. It doesn't surprise me. I think I even remember the comment, and I'm certainly not bothered that you play devil's advocate. That's that's you're you're doing what you should do, um, especially in consideration that I'm saying something that runs against most conventional wisdom. Uh, but I would just say, uh, look, uh, Fed chairmen have been saying, and, and Fed heads have been saying ridiculous things for quite some time. They all, to a man and woman, believe that economic growth causes inflation, even though all historical evidence. Reveals just the opposite. If you ask most of them, they will say that all the killing, maiming, and wealth destruction that was World War II actually stimulated the U.S. economy. I can't think of something more ridiculous and more horrifying, yet they believe it. And so, this idea that they would believe that Fed officials would think they could at least try to engineer a wealth effect doesn't surprise me. Economists believe that you can get something for nothing just by playing around with monetary aggregates. Whereas you and I know that in the real world, it's about products for products. People never exchange money. What they do is exchange products, uh, and they use the agreement of, about value that's money to facilitate exchange. So even if there were no dollars in the U.S. system, money supply would be abundant in the United States, and it would be because Americans are incredibly productive. There's always going to be money where there's productive people. And so to me, the Fed is just it's, – it's an afterthought. Uh, you get rid of it, 
There's going to be abundant money supply because the Americans are the most productive people on earth. The Fed's trying to be relevant. People, of course, economists view it as relevant because it's the biggest employer of economists in the world. But in the real world, let's just ask the basic question, what can the Fed do? Not very much. So, John, in your article, and, and uh, I thought what, this kind of leads into uh, uh, or, or springboards from a comment you just made, I should say, you used the example of Cuba, and I thought it was extremely interesting. It was a perspective that I hadn't seen. And you had said that the inflow of dollars into Cuba has picked up in modern times. And you say, well, of course that's happened uh, because money follows productivity. Can, can you expand on that a bit? Oh, it's, it's a great question, yes. Money doesn't instigate productivity. Money is an effect of productivity. And probably the best way to think about it is let's just take East St. Louis, Illinois, a place known for being very poor. Or let's take closer to you. Let's take Detroit, a city that's going through troubled times right now. What would happen if Jeff Bezos showed up there tomorrow and said, I'm, I'm moving to Detroit? Money supply into the Detroit area would skyrocket, and it would be even if Bezos brought nothing with him, because the assumption would be that he is going to be producing all sorts of things and generating all sorts of economic activity that's going to need to be financed. The simple truth in the real world is that everyone wants to make a buck, and so as, so long as there are productive people, there will be people facilitating investment in those people and facilitating the exchange of what they produce with others. And so that's why the dollar is the main currency in Cuba and always has been to the extent there's productivity, the dollar uh, facilitates it. That's why the dollar is the main currency in Iran. That's why the dollar is the main currency right now in Venezuela. If you have a good and service worth trading, you're going to only accept dollars, which are globally accepted by other producers, for that. And so you don't need the Fed. The Fed didn't set up this money supply in Cuba. What's overseeing the rise in money supply of dollars in Cuba is that Cubans are gradually freer people, and because they are, they can produce. And because they're producing, they would want the dollar to liquefy the exchange of what they produce. So. It's your view then, John, that, and if you're just joining us, by the way, we're chatting today with Mr. John Tamney, who is a Forbes contributor, uh, his most recent book, and we'll talk to him about this in the next segment, The End of Work. Uh, he's also written the books, Who Needs the Fed and Popular Economics. He's the editor of Real Clear Markets, and if you'd like to learn more about John's work, you can go to realclearmarkets.com. John, John, you have indicated that you really don't believe that, that, that Fed policy significantly affects economic conditions. So let me just ask, and I think the listeners would be interested as well, what is your forecast for the U.S. economy moving ahead? Um, I th I'm generally always optimistic, and that's not to say there could be a recession tomorrow. But see, the way I view recessions is that's just a sign of the individuals who comprise the economy fixing themselves fixing what they're doing wrong. And so I'm always an optimist because the U.S. is a largely free country. And because it's free, it's popular. The people within it get to get to constantly improve themselves. And so um, long term, I'm always bullish. There could be hiccups along the way. And, and, you know, what's fascinating about this is this will happen with or without the Fed. And, and it will have nothing to do with what the Fed does. And, you know, I go back to it in, in my book, Who Needs the Fed? I I do draw a correlation. I say, okay, imagine the Fed increasing money supply massively in Baltimore. 
Um, and I make the point that because there's very little economic activity there, that money would flow out almost instantaneously to finance more productive ideas. The banks would lend it out right away, well outside Baltimore. Conversely, what if the Fed tried to shrink money supply in Palo Alto, California? The money would flow back in instantaneously. And why? Because there's so much productive economic activity there. And so where people are free, there's always going to be money. Where people are pr productively working, there's always going to be money because that's what the that's what money flows to. You couldn't sustain money for a long time in Baltimore, but it will always be in, in Palo Alto no matter what the Fed does. And so my the broad answer to your question is precisely because Americans are free to produce, you're always going to see long-term lots of economic growth simply because um, the individuals here are not restrained from doing exciting things. Well, we are sneaking up on the end of a segment. Our guest today, again, is Mr. John Tamney. You can learn more about his work at realclearmarkets.com. And the bad news is this segment is over. The good news is John will be back in the next segment when Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio returns. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. John Tamney. John is a Forbes contributor. He is an author. Uh, his most recent book is The End of Work. He has also penned Who Needs the Fed and Popular Economics. He's the editor of Real Clear Markets and a senior economic advisor to Toriador Research and Trading. And John, uh, let's just jump back in again. You uh, at the end of the last segment, talked about uh, your book, Who Needs the Fed? Um, are you suggesting, uh, like Ron Paul, who's been a past guest here on the radio program, that we maybe abolish the, the Fed or, or limit their role? Uh, yeah. Now, let me be clear. I'm not as, I, I don't think the Fed is the source of all the awfulness that Ron Paul does. I, my, my view is that the Fed's superfluous. And, of course, you get rid of it. You know, the Fed was begun in 1913 as a lender of last resort to solvent, solvent banks. Let's stress that. But as we've seen over the last 100 plus years, a solvent bank would never go to the Fed for a loan. It's an admission of bankruptcy, at which point the Fed has existed to prop up the insolvent. Well, that weakens the banking system overall. The Fed is a bank regulator. Well, 
if you're a, but it's a disastrous regulator, and by definition, it would be. If you could see into the future what banks are going to get into trouble, you wouldn't be a regulator. You'd be a very successful investor. The Fed tries to set the overnight rate at which banks lend to one another, but that's a, interest rates are priced like any other. Which The Fed is a rate follower. It could never set a rate. Implicit there is that price controls work. And so my point is that we don't need the Fed. It serves no useful purpose. But what I, my, my book strikes an optimistic tone is that, sure, get rid of it. But even if you don't, market forces have been rendering the Fed irrelevant for a long time. And, and the cert- simple truth is that the biggest banks fully understand that they kind of set the tone for rates, not the Fed. And so get rid of it. Yeah, why, why would you keep around what's unnecessary? Well, I happen to agree with you, John. And um, <laughs> let me let me uh, ask you uh, about another article that you wrote that I thought was uh, very well done. Uh, I think this was published on Real Clear Politics right after the Super Bowl. Uh, and it's titled, Sorry, Religionist, Government Spending Won't Avert a recession. And in the article, you comment on a New York Times op-ed piece uh, that I think was titled to avoid a recession, start spending now. Uh, So why this big diversity in opinion as to the government's role in averting a recession? Well, because again, economists think that economic growth is driven by demand. They and, And so that's why they love government spending. Hey, government will start demanding things, buying things. But the reality is that as individuals, our wants are unlimited. We all have demands. What drives economic growth is investment. And why does it? Well, because a more productive worker is more productive because of investment. We're able to produce more. Think how much less productive we would be if we'd still be using um, dial-up Internet access as opposed to 4G. And I suppose we're on the verge of 5G, which is supposedly going to be amazing. It's just going to make us much more productive. And so government spending, as a rule, limits economic growth because it's Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and Barack Obama allocating the economy's resources rather than Jeff Bezos and Fred Smith of FedEx. And so you're, at, you're asking the wrong people to misallocate, to basically consume wealth, whereas in the private sector, if that wealth weren't taxed away and spent by government, we would be investing it in new ideas. And so the government spending, as a rule, is going to slow down the economy. That, there's no mystery to that. Only economists believe that, and politicians believe that government spending stimulates economic activity. So, John, if, if, if John Tamney was setting U.S. tax policy, what would it look like? If, if, if I were, if you just let me start us all over again, it would be some sort of consumption tax. It would be a very low consumption tax um, that in an ideal world, you'd limit how much anyone could pay. I've never bought into the notion that because Jeff Bezos um, is richer than I am, that he owes more than I do. I think he adds so much more to the world. Um, than, than I than I ever will or do. And I'll add that the beauty of rich people is not just that they've improved our living standards by getting rich. What's amazing about them is precisely because they're so rich, they don't have to spend all their wealth. Now, Keynesian economists hate that, but I think it's beautiful because that means they have to invest it. And so the rich are the source of the capital that constantly improves our lives through the creation of new companies, new ideas, new cancer cures, things like that. And so um, if you you made me dictator, I would say a very small consumption tax that is capped so that no one pays more than anyone else. And and you leave it at that. Let me add that some, some like more government than I do. Okay, fine. 
where you're going to have it is, city, is in the cities and states. Some people will choose lots of government. Okay, if you want that, pay your taxes locally. I would just have a very limited federal government with a very limited consumption tax to fund it. John, you used a term. In fact, I made a note to uh, bring up this term because when I read your article, sorry, religionist, government spending won't avert a recession, um, I had a, a question to follow up with you and have you explain the difference between uh, Keynesian economics and other approaches. And you just used the term. So let me have you expand on that for the listeners that might not be familiar with it. Um, well, you know, the Keynesian viewpoint is rooted in the idea that demand drives economic growth. Well, if that were true, then Zimbabwe would be booming because they have lots of demand. So do people in Peru, so do people in Haiti. But realistically, and everyone knows this intuitively, you can only demand things insofar as you produce first. And so our production is the driver of our demand. And so the Keynesian viewpoint gets it backwards. I would add that Milton Friedman's monetarism gets it backwards. It's, it's just a variant of Keynesianism that says that if you manage the money supply right, you get economic growth. Well, say that you could manage money supplies like saying you could manage production. Where there's production, there's money. So I, I think a lot of these viewpoints get it backwards. I'm just – I'm simply of the view, which is just a statement of, of the obvious – that what drives demand is production, and so get government out of the way, free people up to do that, at which point money supply will take care of itself because there's always money to be made financing the production of people as they trade it with others as it's invested in new ideas. Well, John, let's shift gears here a minute. Let's talk a little bit about your most recent book, uh, The End of Work. That's an appealing title for a lot of people, particularly now that uh, we've got AOC proposing that we're going to support those people. I'm just digressing and having some fun. But tell us about your, tell us about your book. Well, my book makes the basic point that people are happiest when they're working, um, uh, that it's hard to be happy if you're not productive on a daily basis. And I'm, the broader point is that as prosperity grows, uh, the greatest gift of it is that more and more people are free to do the kind of work that relentlessly elevates what's unique about them. Uh, we live in a world today in which people can make a living based on their love of football, based on their love of food, based on their love of pets, uh, based on their love of wine. Um, this is such a a modern concept. Consider 150 years ago, most people, when they're born, they kind of knew what their path in life was going to be. As soon as they were able, they were going to work on a farm six days a week um, the rest of their lives. Didn't matter if they loved it or hated it. Most human endeavor was directed toward the creation of food. Uh, but thanks to automation, robots, all these things, more and more of us have been freed from producing what's necessary, and that's freed us up to produce life's better things so people get to make living again make a living as entertainers and sports and food and wine um, looking after pets there are dog walkers that make a make earning the six figures that's increasingly common and nowadays there aren't just professional video game players but we're such a prosperous society that video game coach is increasingly profession to be clear back in the 70s 80s and 90s none of these professions existed but now they're very common and so I'm merely making the case that the end of work, what I mean by that is that as prosperity grows, more and more people escape doing work that they have to do in, in favor of doing work that they can't get enough of. 
John, that seems that that's a really interesting concept. Do you, do, and in the fact that, uh, and, I, and I was aware there were dog walkers that that make six figures. In fact, there are now even dog walking coaches to teach you how to run a dog walking business. So, uh, <laughs> let, let, let me just ask you: Do you, do you see it in your book? Do you identify any any trends in in the way people uh, will be working, say, in a decade? Uh, one of the things that I say is we're headed for a four-day work week. Uh, bank on it. You know, there's just, it's so obvious that that's where we're headed. It used to be that people work six six days, then we went to five and a half in the 30s. We're headed for a four-day week because we can produce more and more in shorter time frames. Now, my sense within that is that a lot of people, even though businesses will hire and say, you know, we, we shut down on Thursdays and you come back on, on, on Mondays, a lot of people are going to so fall in love with the work of the future that they're going to be going six days a week just because they can't get enough of it. Uh, for me, I can't get enough of writing, reading, thinking about these ideas. I work all the time because I love what I do, but realize a couple decades ago, <clears throat> the opportunity for me to write and talk about economics was very, very slim. And so I just think more and more people will be like me and, and others. Uh, fascinating thing is dog walking has become an exclusive profession. There are dog walking uh, schools that are harder to get into than Harvard uh, to be accepted into. And so um, more and more people are just going to get to do what they love. So I, I think the future is going to be people falling in love with work. And it's going to be precisely because robots and automation are going to take out of work all the things that were objectionable about it. People will be doing what they're passionate about as opposed to doing what they have to do. And John, you know, one of the other trends that uh, certainly I have seen just in my social circles is that a lot of people now are not going to the office or to their place of business. There's so many people now that are working remotely. I mean, they commute to their kitchen in the morning. Is, is that a trend that we're going to see continue as well in your view? Um, I think it's going to be a combination. It's a great question. I love that you asked it. I think there's going to be a combination. I, Steve Jobs was clearly on to something when he designed the, the, the head, new Apple headquarters before he died. He liked the idea of people running into one another, that, that people being around each other drives creativity. So I, I don't buy for a second that, we're ever gonna, that you're going to see office buildings disappear. I think they're going to keep going up. But what I do think is that the workday is going to be redefined. It's going to be more and more, hey, we expect you here on Tuesday and Wednesday, but there's no expect expectation in the other days. Because you're right, people can work from anywhere. And, and to be fair, people are working at all hours. It's, it's increasingly the case that even when people are at home, they're on their phones, they're on their computers, they can't get enough of work. And so there's going to be still be offices, there's going to be the expectation, but there's going to be much less rigidity as and um, the old in the old days of Hollywood or in, in the Disney of the 1980s, people would the, the expectation was that if you, if your engine was still hot at 8 a.m. as in the, the on your car, it was a sign that you hadn't gotten in early enough. Those days will gradually go away. And, and alongside again, four day work weeks and people working a lot more remotely, but also having an office to go to. That's just my guess. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. John Tamney. John is a Forbes contributor. He's the editor of Real Clear Markets. You can check out his articles or learn more about his work at realclearmarkets.com. And, uh, John, thanks so much for being with us today. Love to have you back. Anytime, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me on. It, it, it had been too long. 
Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. You are listening to RLA Radio. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Again, thanks for joining us today, and thanks again to our special guest, Forbes contributor John Tamney, for joining us today as well. You know, on this program, we often like to give you economic updates, which is our perception as to where the U.S. economy is and the direction it may be heading. And the reason we like to do that is that the direction of the U.S. economy uh, can greatly influence how the investments in your IRA or 401k might perform. Now, all signs are that the U.S. economy may be slowing. And in this segment, I want to give you a couple indicators that are pretty reliable, at least historically speaking. Now, core U.S. factory orders uh, fell for the second month in a row in December. It was reported last week. This is the worst sequential drop since February of 2016. Uh, But more importantly than that, the yield curve is now inverted in 11 different spots. Now, what does yield curve inversion mean and why does it occur? Well, you hear this a lot on financial news shows. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what it is and why it often predicts a recession, historically speaking. Now, I found a really good article uh, from The Balance, uh, and I'm going to give you just a bit from that article, and then I'll have a few comments for you and then a couple suggestions for you at the end of this short segment. Now, in a normal yield curve, the short-term bills yield less than the long-term bonds. Now, what does that mean? It means investors expect that they'll get a lower return when their money's tied up for a shorter period, and they require a higher yield to give them more return on a long-term investment. So, well, we're talking about government bills, notes, and bonds. We could use a CD example. If you tie your money up in a CD for five years, you expect to get a higher interest rate than if you tie it up for only one year. Well, when a yield curve inverts, it turns upside down. And basically, a shorter-term bond gives you a higher yield than a longer-term one. Now, why do these yield curves invert or turn upside down? Well, it's because investors have little confidence in the near-term economy. They they demand more yield. They require more yield for a short-term investment than for a long-term one. In other words, they perceive the near term as riskier than the distant future. 
They would prefer to buy long-term bonds and tie their money up for years, even though they receive lower yields. Now, they'd only do this if they think the economy is getting worse in the near term. Now, an inverted yield curve, or again, this upside-down yield curve, is most worrying when it occurs with Treasury yields. That's when yields on short-term Treasury bills, notes, and bonds are higher than long-term yields. Now, what's healthy? Well, during healthy economic growth, during a normal economic growth period, the yield on a 30-year bond might be about three points higher than the yield on a three-month bill. And incidentally, bills, notes, and bonds um, really all refer to treasuries. Bills are used for shorter term, notes for midterm, bonds are, are the is the nomenclature used for a longer term bond. Now, an inverted yield curve means investors believe they will make more by holding on to a longer term treasury than a short term one. They know with a short term bill, they have to reinvest that money in a few months. If they believe a recession is coming, they expect the value of the short-term bills to plummet soon. So in other words, if you're an investor and you think that a recession is coming, you're going to want to tie that money up for a longer period because you know the Federal Reserve will lower interest rates when the economy slows, and that will mean that short-term bill yields will fall. So if you're convinced that a recession is coming, you might better take a longer-term approach and get a consistent yield rather than take a short-term approach. Well, here's why the yield curve turns upside down or why it inverts. As investors flock to long-term treasury bonds, the yields on those bonds fall. So in other words, these investors are of the mindset they're going to invest past the recession since recessions typically last about 18 months. These longer-term bonds are in demand, so they don't need as high a yield to attract investors. Eventually, the yield on short-term on short-term treasuries on shorter-term debt instruments rises or goes up, and it's higher than the yield on long-term bonds. And when that happens, the yield curve is said to be inverted. So again, if you're an investor and you think a recession is coming, you're going to avoid any treasuries with maturities of less than two years. So does that mean a recession is inevitable? Does it mean a recession is imminent? It doesn't. However, most times since the 50s, when the yield curve has inverted, it has been followed by a recession within 18 months. There are some other signs we may be in line for a recession, existing home sales were down again, 1.2% uh, month over month and 8.5% year over year. Industrial production was down. On a past program, we talked about retail sales being down 1.2% in December, which was the sharpest decline since 2009. And housing starts were down 11.2% year over year. Those are all signs that the economy may be slowing. Now, in a recession, which is defined as two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth or economic contraction, 
we often see asset prices fall as well for reasons that I outlined in the first segment of today's program. Again, we want to go back and point out that you need to educate yourself. Many financial professionals put you in a one-bucket approach. You have some funds in stocks, some funds in bonds, and you stay in those investments no matter what happens in the broader economy. We think a two-bucket approach makes sense, and if you'd like to learn more, you can go to our website. It's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and there's resources there to allow you to learn more. That's our program for this week. Glad you tuned in. We'll be back again next week, same time. 